Welcome to Kashrus on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. And tonight we have some very interesting uh, happenings, a lot of interesting discussions, and I think you'll enjoy it very much. The main topic that we're going to be taking up is, uh, well, I don't know what the main one is. We have so many here. So let's just start and we'll go as far as we can. Uh, since it's the time of year, I'm going to take them a little bit of time, not too much, to discuss the issue of the 7-Eleven, the Slurpees. The reason why we're discussing it today is because on the uh, on, on July 11th, 7-Eleven, that's, right, that's why it's called 7-Eleven, right? July 11th, they are going to have, a, I mean, I assume they still have it, a free Slurpee. You can get one free, free Slurpee you know, waiting online over there at uh, 7-Eleven. And uh, so there's a tremendous taiva that everybody has to go to the 7-Eleven. I, I hear it all the time, and people quote me this way. People tell me that. From here, they heard. From that, they saw. I'm going to just tell you a little bit about what is reality. Nothing is made up here. <laughs> uh, in general, our opinion is that Yeshiva kids don't belong going into Seven uh, Eleven. Even maybe even to, maybe they want to buy something they you know thing they need to, uh, for school or whatever. Okay, but not to take drinks and eat things there because it, it's not the right environment to hang out around there and drink it outside. It's not the right thing to uh, to be buying something that has no ashkocha. Because people don't even, I tell you, people come to me and said, I heard 7-Eleven has Ashkocha. I said, there is no Ashkocha on 7-Eleven in New York. There is in uh, Chicago, and there is in Baltimore, there is, I think Baltimore has, maybe I'm wrong, but Chicago has, and Detroit has. Those cities they have, but not here in New York. We don't need Ashkocha. Maybe they need it in Detroit, maybe in Chicago. They don't know what we know. It's got to be kosher. I saw it in a list from Chicago Rabbinical Council. So it's funny to me because the people who were telling me that, they wouldn't rely on the CRC in Chicago for, for anything. And yet on this, they're relying. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. The list is, is probably very good. And this is probably the same or similar list that everybody else has. So I don't think that's the issue. The issue is, what's the truth? That's the point. What's the truth? And I'm going to tell you the truth right now. I'm reading to you from the OU. Okay? This is an OU statement about Slurpees. I printed it last year, and I'm printing it again this year. The OU certifies a number of Coca-Cola syrups that are used in Slurpees. To purchase Slurpees, it is necessary. You hear that word? That's what the OU used that word. It is necessary to verify two things. Verify. It's your responsibility to be sure of the following two things. Number one, is the syrup made by Coca-Cola? Now, there are other companies that make it too, too, these things too, but the OU is talking now, and the OU is giving on Coca-Cola. So he says, is the syrup made by Coca-Cola? How would you know? Well, it says cola, and it's on the list. One second. What is in that little thing that you just pushed, that button that you're going to push, or it did push, whatever it is? What is in there? Is the syrup made by Coca-Cola? Number two, is the specific syrup OU certified? Because not everything by Coca-Cola is OU certified. So here we go. Uh, do you know the answer to these questions? Only two questions. Listen to what the OU says. Not, not Rabbi Wickler, the OU. And if you want to see it, just go on their website, and you'll find it right there. Irrespective of store claims, that means you can't, trust the store. Irrespective of store, these are the OU words, irrespective of store claims, one can only be certain that a Coca-Cola syrup is used by checking the label on the syrup box. How many of the people who are listening to me who eat Slurpees, drink Slurpees, have ever found a box to examine, have ever done this in their life? What does the OU say? Irrespective of store claims, one can only be certain that a Coca-Cola syrup is used by checking the label on the syrup box. And whether the OU say, before you drink syrup, the, the, before per, to, to purchase Slurpees, it is necessary 
to verify two things. This is made by Coca-Cola and this is certified by the OU. So how could you verify that if you've never looked? Number two, or three of what I'm up to here. However, the Coca-Cola labels on syrup boxes do not bear an OU symbol. The the Coca-Cola labels on the syrup boxes don't. You have to see on the this you you have to uh they won't say OU on it. So provided below is a list of OU certified fountain frozen syrups. So you have to check the OU list to see if it's OU certified. But you have to be sure that it's Coca-Cola or the OU says you can't drink it. But how can you do that if you've never looked in your life? Question. Okay. If uncertain about a particular Coca-Cola syrup, one can verify its certification status by calling the OU and the telephone number direct line, if you want to know about a specific flavor, is 212-613-8241. That's again, 212-613-8241, the OU number for Slurpees. Or you can email OU at kosher at OU.org, or you can check the special tags that are sometimes placed in the Slurpee machine that display the Coca-Cola logo and an OU. Now, that means if they are correct, and we're going to see in a second that they're not always correct on what they put on the on the little tag. Okay, I go on now because I don't want to belabor this. I go on to my dear friends, and I mean that seriously, in the COR in Detroit. These are people that take Kashrus very seriously. They're very consumer oriented. They're very community oriented. They, they have the head, you know, to the grindstone. They're, they're level-headed, and they're not just saying, you know, use my hashkocha, etc. They're telling you as it is. And here's what they say. It's really shocking when you read this. Where will you find it? On their website. Detroit. It's called uh, COR from Detroit. It's the COR of Greater Detroit. Right now I don't have their their email address, but... But you can look, I mean, there's a website, but you can look it up. C.O.R. of Great, it's Council of Rabbis, Vader Abunim of Greater Detroit. Now, with, I, wrote it, I wrote it up last year. Uh, I think it was in the October issue of seven, 2017, and I'm printing it again, but there's a little change, and I want you to hear the change. The C.O.R. of Greater Detroit, that's the Vader Abunim, recommends that Slurpees be bought only at stores that have store-level kashrus supervision of their Slurpees. In other words, don't drink Slurpees in New York. That's what they're saying in the COR in Detroit. Don't drink Slurpees in New York. So they say, it's right, right. They say, and you go to New York, skip it, because we don't have a shkocha. They do. So what can I do? That's the fact. I'll read it again. The COR of the Great Detroit recommends that Slurpees be bought only at stores that have store-level kosher supervision of their Slurpees. To be assured that the syrup box that feeds the machine is actually kosher and parva. Because some of them are dairy. And some of them are treif. So now, again, the syrup box that's feeding the machine, you have to look at the syrup box. That's what the OU told you. That's what the COR told you. But in New York... We don't do it because we know better than the OU and the COR. We know that you don't need it. But they say you do. So who's right? I don't know. Abishan knows. Now listen to what's, what's, what's going on in the real world. The flavor cards on the machine cannot be relied upon. That's what the OU was saying about looking for the tag. Not enough. You must see the box. They themselves told you that you must see the box. Irrespective of, of store claims, one can only be certain that a Coca-Cola syrup is used by checking the label on the syrup box. Where is the syrup box? Did you ever see it? Did you ever look? It's not in front of you. It's in a back room. You cannot find it without special permission of the owner to go in the back room. I was denied, I was denied uh, uh, the opportunity to see it when I went to one of the local 7-Eleven stores trying to find out some of the facts over there, they, they forbid, forbid me to go to the back to see it. So I think you'd have a tough time here in New York, but maybe you'll find a nice place. I'll let you look. Okay. I'm not saying you can't, but 
they owe, but the COR says you should go to a place that has hashkacha. Here a story. So he says, first of all, the flavor cards the machine cannot be relied upon, even if they bear a kosher symbol, even if you see OU on it. Because stores sometimes use syrups that do not correspond with the brand or variety posted on the machine. In other words, sometimes they cheat. Sometimes they're cheating you and they're putting uh, one label on the outside, OU, Parava, Coca-Cola, and inside it's a substitute. That's what they said. Here's a quote from the COR in Detroit. I may read the whole thing from them, but this is what they had recently. Just recently, due to a syrup shortage, some 7-Elevens brought in non-certified generic brands of syrups, which means not the ones that are kosher certified, but still had the brand name flavor cards posted on the machines. In other words, they cheated you. And it was a number of them. I don't know the details, but this is what they wrote. This is what COR in Detroit, the Vada of Detroit, tells us that there was a recently a, a little scandal. Of course, it was hushed up. Of course, you never heard about it. I only heard about it on June 28th when he sent this to me. In addition, when changing flavors, stores generally do not clean the machine in between. And during the transition, there can be a significant mixture of flavors, one of which may be non-kosher or dairy. That says a lot. That means even if they're accurate and they're honest and they try their best, they leave in certain amount of syrup when they're switching over flavors to that particular line, and they can have non-kosher in there, they can have dairy in there, and they can have mislabeled in there. Yes, fact. I stress one word that can be a significant mixture of flavors. Significant. Now, what I'm going to read now is something that boggles my mind. I read it last year, and I didn't even go into the brain. Maybe I thought of it for a moment, but this is like unbelievable. Listen to these few words. I don't want to belabor it, but I want you to hear it. It's really unbelievable. The COR provides supervision for Slurpees at five local 7-Eleven stores, but only for the machines specified on the COR certificate posted at each location. And they have five stores. One of them, Lincoln and Greenfield, they certify all of the Slurpee machines. There are three of them. In the other four stores, the COR only certifies one machine, not two and not three, one machine. It's the left one. <laughs> that we, at least that much is the same in every store. But you have to look left if you want to be sure, or you have to lead a little list to find out. You have to read the thing on the wall. Unbelievable. You know what this means? I know what it means. It means that the company does not want to let all of the machines be controlled by the COR. They want to put in experimental flavors that are not certified. This I know for a fact. They want to put in non-certified new flavors that the company asks them to try out and get the response. This is what they do. I, I saw it myself in the store. It, the, he showed me his, the thing. is, I said to him, there's no hashkach on it. And you told me it's all kosher. Well, we had to put this in, they told me. You had to put it in? Yes. Now I understand why it's so hard to get all the machines in the store kosher. How the other, the other place does all three, I don't know. I suppose they made a deal with the company. They're not going to experiment. But in any event, only the left machine is, is good in these four stores. Because, you, A, they're going to put in something that's trial, and also they have non-kosher and, and dairy ones. And people like them. You know, I can't just service your religious Jews. I can't just do that all the time. So that's what happens over there. If one is in an area where no supervised stores are available, the COR recommends the consumer request permission to inspect the label on the syrup box and then check a reliable list of kosher Slurpees to verify the product's kosher status. Now, there are a lot of these lists. I'm not going to talk about them now. Look at this last note, and then I'm going to let you go on this part, on this issue. The box of syrup 
that feeds the machine is generally located in the back of the store in an area that is off limits to non-employees and cannot be entered without express permission from the store manager. When I was in the store, the manager wasn't there, and they didn't want to let me in. So I, happy slurping. It's a it's a bit of a challenge. I just that, that's I'm not going to be bothering you every week on it. I just wanted you to hear it once properly and uh, hopefully share it with other people what we just told you. If not, you can always read it in Cassius Magazine and the October issue, which is going to come out in September. That's why it says October. Now I'm going to share with you some other things that are very very important. These are not of the same status as this. I think maybe everybody who's listening to me knows already, but in case you don't, Pashka's has suspended distribution of Sour Works, extreme sour candy. I don't know if you know what that is. Hopefully you don't. But if you see it, don't buy it. Sour Works does a job on your tongue. The picture is that they show of a kid who was hurt by it is amazing. But Pashkas told me that there is no long-range effects. I spoke with them. There's no long-range effects. It's not really dangerous in the regular sense of the word, but it could be a little unpleasant, and a kid could have something on his tongue. Yes, it could be there a certain amount of time. So, yeah, you wouldn't want it on your kid, and you really don't want them to have the sour works. And the trouble is that they loved it. So I don't know if there's any... <laughs> And there's any uh, way that they're getting it, you know, undercover. They still have some supplies and they're buying them. And they used to have like contests. How many of those could you take? Extremely sour and not not pleasant at all. And and but yet people, you know, the kids, the kids do it like it was like a bravado, you know. How many of those could you take? <laughs> All right, Baruch Hashem, they stopped it. I spoke with them about it before. They said that, the, you know, everything is fine, but I, I see somehow that they were pushed a little bit into dropping it. Just an, uh, a yump to, uh, um, uh, another, another thing that uh, came up this week. It's actually a, a year old, but it, it blew up this week. It's, uh, it's not really, you know, cautious per se, and yet it is, and it's a very interesting story, but I'm not going to go into the details. But you're going to hear about it probably one way or the other, so I'll be the first one to tell you. And uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to write about it. It's just a lot to think about if I should write about it. In Israel, there's a famous wine company, Barkan Winery, B-A-R-K-A-N, Barkan Winery, in Shomron. And uh, they've been around for a million years. That's, a, that's really an old company. And it's uh, they, they're very well liked. You know, got good distribution. You see it around here. So recently, they took on the Eda Hacharedis. Last year, as a matter of fact, one year ago, they got the Eda Hacharedis Hashkocha in addition to the other Hashkochas they they have. Problem, the Eda saw was going on, and they said we have a, a distinct problem here because you have Ethiopian workers. And not all of them have been properly, uh, you know, converted. And that they feel their position is that uh, they need conversion. It's not enough to say uh, that they come from an Ada that was discovered in Ethiopia and that they're, that they're Ethiopian Jews are 100% Jewish without any conversion. And I saw pictures of them, not pictures. I saw even, I saw, I saw pictures, a lot of pictures of them, uh, the ones who are working in the plant, and they definitely look very religious. But I don't think they went through conversion. And some of them did, I believe, the way I understood the story. Some of them did go through conversion. But the problem was, you know, singling out one versus another. That's also a problem. So the position of the of the Ada was we have to take all of those people and put them at other jobs in the factory. They're going to work. We're not, no one should have to be, leave their job, but we're going to change the job. We're going to put you on a different part of the factory for 
bark and wine, at least anything that has the Ada. And that's what they asked for. And it created a, a major problem because I, th- I believe Rabbi Yosef, the current Rabbi Yosef, uh, in, considers them to be properly Jewish. And I, religious, I could tell you that they, some of these guys are. Forget about the yarmulkes. I mean, they really look, they look very from. But uh, it yeah, doesn't matter. The question is, are they Jewish? And the position of the Ada is that there isn't enough proof that they're Jewish and that we don't want them touching the wine. So this created, uh, what can I tell you, in a little of excitement. In total, they wanted three people changed from their position to a different part of the plant. And um, there was a discussion this way and discussion that way. But obviously the Ada is holding their ground. And uh, I, I don't know how it'll end up. I don't know if Barkin will drop them, the Ada, because it it's too hot to handle. I don't know if there'll be a big backlash in the in the country. It's an, a very unfortunate thing. But unfortunately, this is the, the, the problem with Ethiopians that uh, not everyone agreed with the original position that they didn't need conversion, that there was enough true uh, enough backing that they are Jewish already. So this is just a topic, an incidental topic, and and it shows first of all the Ada is not going to give, and what they think has to be done is what's go- what they're going to do, and uh, it's it's the tensions in Israel, it's 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 a it's a story, but it's not something that I really want to be busy with. So let me look into the future now that I have you on listening. Uh, let me look into the future. I'm not talking a future about a year from now or 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 seven months from now, or 20 years from now. I'm talking about next week. <laughs> because next week, ACO is having a VADM conference in Woodridge, Woodbridge, New Jersey. So in the Renaissance Hotel. If you have a chance to stop by, sneak in, maybe they'll let you into a session, maybe not. At least you'll meet all the big people in Kashrus except me. <laughs> Because I'm not really working at Kashrus, and I'm not going to be able to go. But the uh, I will get all the uh, the, uh, the all of it is um, printed up. The there's the minutes and not, not minutes. It's more than that. It's really you know from the recordings they they transcribe whatever what people said. So we get all the information in a little down the road. But I wanted you to hear what they're discussing because I thought it was very interesting. The topics, the the one of the first topic. How about that? The first topic is trephus in packaged chicken. Trephus in packaged chicken. Shilas that make it all the way to the butcher shop. You know what that means? That means when you go to buy the shilas that you're getting in the chickens that you buy. Did you hear me? Maybe you didn't get it. Trafus and packaged chicken is being discussed by ACO, the Association of Kashrus Organizations. They have uh, two people there, Rabbi Chaim Loiki, who is, who is the bird rabbi. He, he, he's a specialist in birds and for the OU. And he, uh, they're going to be a presentation there to point out the shyless that could actually end up in your house. I know people don't believe me. You sort of think, well, there were so many mashkichim looking and everything in the butcher store. And First of all, there's no butcher stores anymore. Everything comes prepackaged. Everything was done at the plant. No one's checking anything anymore. No one knows what to check. No one knows anymore what to check. So it's, it, it's just, you know, and the workers are not uh, trained in it. So basically, they take chicken and throw it into a package and put the, the name of the store on it, and that's it. And they're taking a million chickens. They had non-Jews of sticking it in. Then no one's examining these things. So basically, it's up to you when you take it out, and you have to look and see if you know if there's a shell in the chicken. Were you ever trained in inspecting chickens? We did anyone ever show you what's a shell in a chicken? Did you ever see at Sumasagidin where there's a, a break in the the uh, in, in, in the in the, in the the sinews from the chicken leg, did you ever see black and blue marks that make the chicken trafe that you were that you bought? 
I always love to tell this story, and I said it here at least once, but not in a lot of times. So you don't, I don't think it's a repetition. One woman I know, she lives in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and she went to Rabbi Tights, who was a big maven in, in chickens, and he, he, was a, he, he was in charge of a shrita, and uh, the top of the old Rabbi Pichas Tights, and uh, he, uh, he was her rov, and she bought chickens from a certain place, she bought a case of them, and every time she bought a case, she had a few questions. She went to the rabbi, and the rabbi would say, treif, kosher, treif, kosher, kosher, treif. And invariably, in a box of chickens, she said, I'd have three or four that he would call treif. I don't know if it was that many. Maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating. But it was, it was definitely, she was hitting bad numbers. They all came in with ashkocha, but Rabbi Tait said, treif. Now, I've been a little luckier. I don't think I got too many trafes over the years. Maybe just one. But I remember one. I don't know if there were any others. But I got a number of, uh, you know, cut off of this piece. <laughs> In other words, the salting wasn't done well. Or, you know, it's a Shila, you know. Okay, we're putting it away, you know. Not going to use it. And I've had them over the years. We we definitely have to check our chickens. Now, you don't know what to do, so you have to go to somebody who knows. You go to a rov who knows. You want to do it yourself, you got to get the book from uh, from my friend there. What is it again? Who is it? What's the name of the book again? Uh, come back to me, the name. Uh, there's a, the, 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 it's an illustrated uh, illustrate a book on chickens, and uh, and gives you gives you the uh, gives you pictures to look at. But there are other people around who have these pictures of similar nature. So if you can you get some of these pictures to look at, and to if they if they're good quality pictures, and you could use it to, 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 to train yourself, fine. If not, take it to a rov who is familiar with chickens. You know, not every rov has ever dealt with chickens, but when you have a shaila, whether or not, again, there are general rules. I'm not going to go through it today. Maybe we'll get somebody back on um, to discuss it. Rabbi Lach is the one who put it out, and uh, it's called uh, Chulin Illuminated. That's the name of the book, Chulin Illuminated. And you have to get the version, the second version, which says in the outside that it has these pictures inside uh, of, uh, of Trefus in Fow. So that's the first session, and I say, wow, that's beautiful, and I'm, I'm definitely going to look forward to hearing what came out of that session. But basically, I can get up and Chaim uh, Luki myself, and probably send me whatever I need. Now, the next one that I that was interested in, in is going to is going to be a Monday afternoon one. Video cameras at food service establishments, and we're hearing so much about that. And we heard last week that it's like an almost a necessity to have these cameras. One of the local hashgachas here in Flatbush told me that we use a lot of these video cameras, and it's true we don't review it that much, but sometimes we do review it a lot, and we make sure we we check up on these people using these video cameras, and uh, we, sometimes we you know, look at it for quite a bit just to make sure we're, we're monitoring him. And it's ex- extremely helpful because it can get, they can get these cameras. They're not expensive anymore, and you can get them in different parts of the facility. It's kind of hard to hide things from all these video cameras, and it's, it's a shame that most people, most most of the conscious agencies haven't signed on to it yet. But that's definitely not the wave of the future. It's the wave of the present. And we so we hope in the future that everyone will sign on to this idea of using these video cameras. Here's another one of their sessions from the ACO next week's program. Understanding and accepting Israeli hashkachos. There's a gentleman I have not had a chance to meet. I'm not sure who he is. I'm not even sure which organization he's from. There's a Rabbi Shmuel Weiner, or Weiner from Israel who's running that session, accepting and understanding, accepting Israeli Hashgachas. And Rabbi Zalman Krems, 
who used to be the head of the KVH in Boston, but he recently made Aliyah, and uh, he's He's called himself an independent kashas professional. So I don't know what his job is in tying into kashas, but he must be familiar with the Ashgachas in Eretz Israel. And the two of them are running that session, which they only have 45 minutes for. I can't imagine. I can't imagine you can do that in 45 minutes. But let me tell you uh, a little bit about what you can do for yourself if you're concerned about it. Very, very simple. Today, the world got much simpler. Everybody knows that there are seminaries and yeshivas in Eretz Israel where Americans go. American boys, American girls, they go to Eretz Israel for a year, two years, sometimes a little more. And sometimes they make aliyah. Not with the parents usually what they want necessarily, but that's what happens in the real world. They send them, and then some of them stay on. In any event, when they hit Eretz Israel, they left America where they were buying either O-U-O-K, Kuf-K, Star-K, or they were buying Hamish, 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 and Hamish, and they knew more or less the layout of America. Basically two standards, what I call the American standard of Kashras, and then maybe Hamish, maybe if it's better, uh, whatever. But you got the idea of what goes on here. In Israel, it's a little more, uh, more exciting because you have the plain Rabuniyot, just doing a basic level, which would be for the most uncommitted Jew, that they should have some level of kosher. And then you have high standards, very, very high standards, beat out of America for sure. So these are this, that's the situation there. So how in the world can you navigate that? So there's a simple thing. Every yeshiva for Americans, for any farmers, and any, any girls' school, not only seminaries, but I think I think even the the ones that are don't call themselves seminaries that are for girls, all of them have a list or several lists that they give over to the girls in the first week or two that they're there. It's part of getting them used to the country, and you know they're going to be traveling, they're going to be eating, and we want to make sure they're eating kosher, so they're trained in the school, and a list is given to them. Some, one school I know, they gave A, a B, and C. Like, if you want to be real from, this is your list. If you want to be more moderate, this is your list. If you want to go baseline, this is where your list is. But uh, most of the stuff in Israel is not on that list. It's just a small number of hashkachas in the whole country. And that's what they're telling the, the girls and the boys to use. But that's enough. They'll have food galore for the whole time that they're there. There's no, they'll never suffer with that list. There's plenty of good food there in Eretz Israel with top-line ashkachas. But the girls and boys have to know something about it, so they teach them. So all you have to do is either contact somebody who went to that school or currently going to one of those schools, get the list from them, or contact the school directly and beg for the list. But you should be able to get a list from a school that you recognize and 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 appreciate, and that and they are guiding you, so you don't have to go to the actual meeting to get that. But I think that everybody should have some kind of handle on what's going on in Eretz Israel. The next one that I mean, these are, they, this is, they're having many, many more sessions. This is going on for three days. But the, the another session that they're going to have, which I think is extraordinary, is are you ready for this? Standing up for our principles, certifying events whose non-kashrus elements conflict with our religious beliefs. I don't want to spell it out, but I think you get the point. If you don't get the point, I'll read it again, but I don't want to spell it out. Certifying events whose non-kashrus elements conflict with our religious beliefs. I think you know what I'm talking about, but I don't want to go into details the hour is early, and I don't want to confuse some people who are listening. So you don't get it? Okay. And uh, that's the, one of the other sessions. And then they have a one on Bedikas Toloyim, which looks like a biggie. They had dedicated over an hour to that one, so that's uh, going to be a nice, interesting one. Um, no, no, they didn't do that. They have Bedikas Toloyim. They gave a 20-minute thing. I'm sorry. The next one they had was monitoring butcher shops. I don't even know what a butcher shop is anymore. 
And the last one, getting along with proprietors. That's a beauty. So in any event, it's not Nogaya to us now, but when we get some information from them in the next few months, I will try to share what I can with you on some of those topics for sure because they're great. In the remaining time, I have a few interesting topics. I'd like to go into this one, even though I believe we touched on it before, but I think it's it's very important to review, and many of the things in Kashras I know I have to review because new people listen, and and people do forget, and I want to make sure that everybody understands. So I have a good friend. He considers me a good friend. I consider him a good friend, Rabbi Yaakov Luban at the OU. And Rabbi Luban wrote, this was in, this was a couple of years ago, it was two years ago, but um, he's been writing about this for years. He had a piece that appeared in our magazine, or maybe two of them, about the same topics back a number of years ago. But I think this is very interesting, and it's, it's always good to review. And it's basic kashras. What could be wrong with there's a number of things we're going to discuss, but what could be wrong with them? So here's how he starts out. When I was a child, the Rabbi Luban, when I was a child, shopping for a kosher candy bar was a simple matter. I don't know how that's true because for me it was always hard. I mean, there are not too many that were kosher. In those days, a candy bar was only a nickel. We would carefully review the ingredients printed on the back of the label. If there were no ge- there's no gelatin in the candy... We wisely concluded that the product was unquestionably kosher. Wow, that's the way it was. <laughs> no matter what the ingredient, that the no matter the ingredients listed, polysorbates and sodium stearyl lactylate, we had no idea what they were. Personally, I don't know if it's correct. I'm sure he, you know, I love Rabbi Luban, and I'm not sure if he checked it out. But I would sort of guess that they didn't list those things in those days. Today you list them, but I don't know if they listed them at all in those days. Back, I mean, we're almost the same age, and I, back in my day, I don't think we ever saw these funny names. I think they just kept them off the label. They put good stuff down like sugar, you know, <laughs> natural flavors. That's what they put in. I don't remember them with all these orbates and stuff. I'm not, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. But if he said so, maybe he researched it. If he didn't research it, I think they didn't do it. <laughs> They sounded too technical to be non-kosher. We simply believed, what could be wrong with a candy bar? Today, our innocence is gone. You can no longer purchase a candy bar for five cents. (laughs) And most people know that you cannot judge a candy by its wrapper. That's a good line. Nonetheless, while kosher consumers today are generally more knowledgeable than years ago, many myths still prevail. What could be wrong with remains a common refrain among kosher consumers. So he goes into the fruit cocktail one, which is simple, but this he makes an interesting point. He said, in truth, it is generally not possible to gather enough information from the label to judge the kashras of an item. Now, I want to remind you that there is a rabbi who is certifying a vegetarian restaurant we had a little clash with him. He's certifying a, 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 a vegetarian restaurant, and he's allowing them to use cheese that has no hashkocha whatsoever. I'm going to tell you also that there's a rabbi in our general area that reads the packages and says, what could be wrong with this? How do I know? Because we confronted him. And he said, his Rebbe told him that. We went to his Rebbe. And his Rebbe said, yes, I believe you can read the packages and make a decision. And that Rebbe is one of the most well-known names in Kashras. So this myth is still going on in certain circles, even those who give Hashkacha. I know you don't believe me. You don't. You think I'm exaggerating. You think it's off the wall, but there's a certain rov who who taught that, and he trained this this first rabbi, 
who trained another rabbi. We're already working on a few generations where this is ingrained by people who are involved heavily in kashras, who believe that they can just read in the label and decide everything is okay. And that's what you're getting. So now you understand how not all hashkachas are alike. But the OU doesn't work that way, that's for sure. And the OU is telling you now, Rabbi Luban is speaking, and he tells us three examples of why you can't read labels. First, the product may be made from kosher ingredients but processed on non-kosher equipment. For example, canned vegetables may be cooked in kettles used for pork and beans. Tuna fish may be processed in retorts used for canned shrimp and tomato products like canned tomatoes and tomato sauce, tomato puree, tomato juice and ketchup sound pretty easy. Maybe ketchup is more exciting, but the others sound very simple, right? Tomatoes, tomato paste. I mean, canned tomatoes, canned tomatoes, tomato paste, tomato puree, tomato juice. How could it be bad? Some of them use common lines with tomato and meat or tomato and cheese sauces. And I want to remind my listening audience that this can, they can be produced at the same time using what they call as a retort. You can produce different kinds of products at the same time using the same water in a retort. So you are getting direct contact at the at the at direct contact with non-kosher cans sharing the same hot water cooking them. I'm not exaggerating. This is this is common. It's a it's a scary part of the whole kosher field. Because that's, you know, some people don't even go to plants. If you don't go to a plant, then you don't know what's going on there. You, what I'm just talking about, you wouldn't know. One rabbi, this is all me now, Not this is not Rabbi Luban. One rabbi that I know has 32 plants. It's only one of his ashkachas, but he has 32 plants making some vegetables. And I asked him, I asked him, have you been at those plants? He said, no. So I said, how do you give hashkacha? So he said to me, I, you know, I look at the, the, the books that list, you know, what they make, and they don't make anything not kosher. So I said, what do they do not in season? That's in season, but not in season. They will, when, when they see these, these plants are located nearby where they grow these vegetables. So in the corn area, they're going to move a lot of corn and, and peas and corn in that area that w- w- does a lot of growing of grain. But will they do also on their in their cans, will they make uh, something that's not kosher? Not during the season, because in high season, they're working very hard to, to satisfy the needs of the farmers in this area and to, do, and to get our volume up for the season, to, you know, whatever they have to do. But but when it's not in the season of the vegetables, they'll do anything. They got a whole canning plant that's not being used half the year. So if you call them up and offer to ask them to come, can I you can for me? You know these uh, these non kosher items, they'll do it. So I I raised that to the rabbi and I told him my a plan of how to check that they're not doing that. But the point is that a rabbi certifying thirty two plants without visiting them, that's scary. Number two, second, the USDA does not require the listing of certain processing aids, such as pan liners and oils that serve as release agents. They're not, they're not being, um, there's no control over it. So you can use these things, these pan liners and these oils as release agents, and they may be trafe, 100%. Number three, Finally, many ingredients can be kosher or non-kosher depending on the source of supply. And there's not enough descriptive information on the label to make a clear analysis. Wow. So true. How could you know if it's animal or vegetable? Well, I think well, most of it in America. No, don't. Don't give me most of America. You're putting your name on the product and you're telling me most of America? Come on. That's what's happening. 
not in the Oyum. And I don't want to say who, but, but definitely there's a difference between Ashkachas. So we gave you three good reasons. One, that the kosher ingredients can be on non-kosher equipment. Two, that they don't have to list certain things like pan liners and oils. They're called release agents. And you don't, and then some of the ingredients can be made in both traif or non, or, or kosher, uh, sources, and you'll never know. So you can't read it, the ingredients, and say that you know that this product is kosher. That's a very, very important point that he made. He gives an example of vinegar. And vinegar sounds pretty simple, but vinegar, you know, wine and grape juice, um, you need hashkocha the whole time for production. Alcohol can be derived from grape juice. It's called mark alcohol, M-A-R-C, mark alcohol, and therefore requires supervision as well. Vinegar is manufactured from alcohol. Most people are aware that white wine vinegar needs hashkocha, but but they don't realize that any form of vinegar may contain wine-derived alcohol. Right. There was the famous story, Vinegar Gate. I don't know how much you remember of it, where you weren't born at that time. It was in the 1980s. It was, this, it was the biggest scandal that ever hit Kashrus. Maybe the biggest scandals. But anyway, it was, a big, it was a biggie. And what happened was that they were looking for Pesach, that the thing should be kosher or Pesach, so they wanted to make sure it wasn't grain alcohol. But the alcohol that we're talking of, that was used that they, they were certifying kosher Pesach was made from wine alcohol, mark alcohol. And that mark wine alcohol, that was what was being used. It was treif. And it was being used by everybody in the industry. I'm not exaggerating. Everybody in the industry. And that and they made products like a ketchup, kosher Pesach. Or, yeah, and and they made uh, they made a whole bunch of things. Uh, mayonnaise, kosher pesach. Then stores made salads using the those things, and they called them kosher pesach, and they were selling them as kosher pesach, until a few days before pesach, this whole thing blew up, and we found out that the emperor has no clothes, and we found out that everything there was treif. Treif. And everybody, you know, long list of products that they that they said, don't use this and don't use that. And every hashkocha came out. It was a very, very, very unfortunate part of our kashrus experience. But what's interesting is that alpi halacha was all kosher. <laughs> I just told you it was not kosher. How could it be kosher? Halacha is an interesting thing. There's different levels. There's different levels. And then you have to know the level we're talking about. You have to know what the Shaila is now. You have to know what we're talking about here. What is the case? So we, you looking at it as the case was, is this product kosher, that it has kosher ingredients? But there's another question. It's called Hefzid Maruba. Hefzid Maruba means a major loss. A major loss, it was in the, I don't know if it was, it sounded to me like it was in the many millions of dollars. It had to be in the many millions of dollars. In addition to that, in addition to that, there's a special, you see, there's a special halacha. I don't know if you'll catch it right away. The, we follow, I mean, Ashkenaz follows Ramosha Isilis, and he paskin that there's no problem of Hanan Bishari surim, belach belach. I don't want to explain the whole topic here today. It'll take more than five minutes, so I'm not going to explain it. But basically, the Ramor says, in such a scenario where you're talking about a liquid, and it was a very derived thing from the other, from, from back from the alcohol. It's a few steps in between, so each step has to make the other one not kosher. In this particular case, the Ramor would have permitted it but it was public knowledge already. And the question was, do we have, as principle, say, 
we're going to call it not kosher because we know it's really not kosher according to the regular halacha, or we're going to employ the din of hefse meruba and permit it. And there was enough reason to permit it, but the decision of the conscious organizations, for whatever reason, whatever it was, their decision was, we're going to take the hit. But it was a very big one. It was very, very big. And it caused a lot of trouble in the different conscious organizations for a very long time. And I, I don't want to discuss any more of it. It's a history. We wrote up about it extensively in the old days, in the 1980s. But I don't want to go into it because it just it gets people upset when they find out all the details. We go on. Here's a few more things that are problems. Vegetable oil. Vegetable oil. What's wrong with vegetable oil? Well, lard and tallow come from animal products. And they're not, obviously they're not kosher. This is because many and this is because many companies manufacture animal and vegetable oil on the same equipment. So vegetable oil needs hashkacha a hundred percent. Now there is a position that's going on in Europe and in Australia that certain conscious organizations rely on the products being kosher. If it says, let's say, uh, corn oil, this oil, that oil, they'll permit it even though it has no hashgacha. There are some hashgachas that permit it. There are some rabbis who are lenient about it. But the position of the OU is definitely not that way. And it's, it's definitely not a good way to go. What's the reason, the rationale there? Why are they permitting it? It's got to do with something about how if it would be meat, like tallow, it would taste bad in the oil, and therefore it would be bottled, it would be nullified. I don't want to go details. Another one is emulsifiers. These are things that you can't see from the ingredients. Just seeing those words, you don't get the idea that they're treif, or could be treif, but they really can. So he discusses what's in them. There's mono and diglycerides that the emulsifiers stearates, stabilizes, dough conditioners, and glycerin. These are all made either animal or vegetable, but you don't know which one. Natural and artificial flavorings and food colorings. Now, most people don't get it. They think natural flavor, it's a natural orange flavor. What could be wrong? I'll tell you what could be wrong. It could be trafe. But natural orange? Natural orange flavor is not from an orange. Natural orange flavor means it tastes like an orange and it is natural ingredients. Pig is also natural. Carmine is also natural. A lot of things are natural, but they're not kosher. <laughs> so it, it has nothing to do, being natural, uh, natural flavors has nothing to do with being kosher. And he's going to give us an interesting thing here. Three of the most common problematical ingredients in flavors and colors are what I often refer to as the three C's. This is Rabbi Luban from, I mean, I'm not Rabbi Luban, I'm Rabbi Wickler from Kasha's Magazine, but I'm reading Rabbi Luban from the OU, it's what he wrote. So he said, he calls it the three C's, carmine, civet, and castorium. Carmine comes from pulverized shells of an insect. Uh, civet is an extraction from a cat secretion. Castorium is a beaver secretion. So these are really uh, pretty disgusting things, and uh, you could find it in the natural uh, flavors and colors, and, you know, it could be in there. So that's a little bit of an idea of some of the things that could go wrong there. I want to read some of the things that he pointed out, which I think even if I did talk about this generally once, I didn't go into these details, so I'm going to give you a few examples of foods that have issues. Banana chips are fried in oil. And the oil, and I, my experience is that the oil can be 
literally treif, even if it's a corn oil, even if, you know, even if it was one of those countries that we just talked about, right, that allowed you to use some kind of oil that they think is okay. Aside from the question of maybe it was produced on non-kosher equipment, there's, a more, there's another very dramatic situation. A lot of times, oil is reused. One of my most successful findings was when I discovered that uh, pita chips that were made, that were called parva, were actually dairy. Now, obviously, there was no dairy in the oil that, that, was, that was put there but they, together with the chips. I mean, they just wanted the chips to be, you know, crunchy. So they fried them in oil. But they had used the oil before, and it was dairy. I found out about it. I reported to the Kashrus Agency. The Kashrus Agency did an about face and took the whole thing off and, and, and told everybody to give their money back. Get their money back, and they and they and they removed the product from the shelves, because it had been produced in 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 dairy oil. So, my goodness, don't think think is so so innocuous. Now the uh, the canned vegetables are a major issue, a major issue. The canned vegetables we talked about it before, but today even, but it's a really very dramatic situation. The canned vegetables, canned vegetables. They are producing, at sometimes at the same time, pork and beans together with the beans. Anything in the beans family, forget it. You need a hashkacha 100%. You need a good hashkacha. You need somebody that goes down to the plant and knows what's going on over there. And then they're not running any pork and beans. It's getting late already. I'm just going to take a minute because it is the still the summer. If anybody's interested in in following up with the, getting the uh, our Kashrus magazine, the Kosher Travel Guide, this is an excellent time to do it before you go away. Or if you're away, you can still do it, and we'll send it to wherever you are, and you can go to more places. We have 360 destinations in the Kosher Travel Guide, and uh, the Bar Hashem did very well in, in selling in, in, you know, in the places where we were able to get it sold. And uh, we'd love to find more places. If you know some places that would like to sell our magazine, you certainly can contact us about that. But if you want a copy, give us a ring at 718-336-8544. That's the Kosher Travel Guide. If you want to get the magazine, the subscription, you can call us. And you can go on the web at com and check out the magazine, get a little flavor for it. We don't put everything up, but we put some of it up so you at least get a flavor of what the magazine is all about. And uh, love to be able to help you. And there's a special J-Roots, the J-Roots special. Just when you contact us, just say, I want the J-Roots special, and you will be saving a lot of money. Uh, let me just, before we close, let me spend another minute and give you a little, a little tip I see if I've mentioned any of these things before. Yeah, there's a there's another uh, thing that came out. It's interesting. It's called San Paolo, S A N P A O L O, brand chocolate chip cookies and cranberry cookies. They have the C O R from Canada. But what's interesting is they're sold in the o- the U S. So if you see San Paolo chocolate chip cookies, they're dairy, and they forgot to put the D on. So that's a, an, another little tidbit. Uh, this just came out. And I'm looking through here. Yes. Kellogg's Honey Smacks Cereal. Remember now, Kellogg's is under the OU for anything that has a... I mean, I think they started putting OUs on. Kellogg's Honey Smacks Cereal, regardless of package size or the best if used date, has been recalled because it's been linked to salmonella infections. So watch out for honey smacks. I know the kids love to have these things, and just you have to you have to be careful. The last thing I'm going to give you is Tom's shoes. That's right, Tom's shoes. They have they have uh, they have shoes that sell. You can buy them on the online. Tom's shoes. They have canvas. And they have material styles that say it's, you know, it's not a leather. But they have suede leather insole. So you can't use it on Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur. 
You have to buy toms that say they're free of leather. They're called vegan. You know, if you don't buy the vegan from Tom Shoes, you can't wear it on, on Tisha B'Av or Yom Kippur. So these are a few little highlights from the world of Kashrus. And until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine, wishing you a wonderful week.